funeral service in Washington. Becoming your own lobbyist on Capitol Hill. A funeral radio special. With Robert M. Fells, Executive Director and General Counsel to the ICCFA. Hello again. This is Bob Fells, and I want to welcome you to yet another program on Funeral Radio with our ongoing series of funeral service in Washington. And as I speak to you today, uh, from where I am, you know something that I don't know, depending on when you hear this. Uh, we're about three weeks out from the elections on, was it November 8th, I believe, this year, Tuesday? 2016. And so at this point, I don't know who will be elected our new president. Um, if you listen to this before November 8th, well, you won't know either. So that makes two of us. But chances are, uh, if you hear this afterwards, um, again, you will know exactly uh, who our new president is for at least the next four years and with running for re-election possibly the next eight so who knows? But what's important is, is um, what the new administration will mean to us, to all Americans, to working Americans, individuals, families, to businesses, both large and small. So that's really what I'm talking to you about. This is not uh, electioneering here. I'm not trying to politicize this. I will tell you one thing. I'm going to give you my prediction of which candidate, Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump, I think will win the election. But I'm going to explain my selection, and of course I could be totally wrong, admit that right off, but this is not a personal or a subjective, and I'll explain toward the end of our time here together uh, where I'm coming from and why I think one or the other will win, not because I like them or I like their policies or I like their party or anything else, but on a very pragmatic thing of who I think the voters will vote for, give you know, most of the votes, and why. Why the voters, I think, will vote that way. So I may be wrong, but I'll explain where I'm coming from. And of course, a lot of our elections are full of surprises. And this one to follow in about three weeks may not be any different. Uh, first of all, I wanted to explain... Um, how we got here. I, I have a problem with a lot of the commentary I'm hearing in the newspapers, online, on uh, cable news, and from all the stations. I'm not going to pick on any one station. Uh, some tend to slant a little more to the left politically. Others slant more to the right. Uh, even uh, factoring that in, I keep on hearing that for this election, that Americans want change. They all want change. You've probably heard that too. And without further analysis, without explaining, well, what sort of change does everyone want? That's a kind of a naive point of view. It's like saying um, the best answer to give in most situations is yes, or the best answer to give in most situations is no. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, we all know it depends on the question. If someone says, here, would you like a million dollars? The best answer would be yes. But if someone says, would you like to drop dead in the next 10 seconds? The answer would be no. So there's nothing intrinsically right 
about yes and there's nothing intrinsically right about no or wrong with either ones. Well, it's the same thing when, when we hear the commentators saying that uh, Americans want change. They want certain changes, but they also, I think, do not want other types of changes. For example, there are many people, and these are the people who will undoubtedly vote because they feel they have something to state at stake. I think the people who decide not to bother to vote are people who feel they don't have anything to lose, and maybe they don't have anything to gain either. But the people who turn out to vote, or more and more people, by the way, vote by absentee ballot. So if you're listening to this before the election and saying, well, I think I'll be out of town or I'll be traveling on election day, uh, find out your local um, uh, precinct, polling precinct, and you can vote absentee ballot before election day. You have to tell them, you know, look, I expect to be out of town or this or that's going to be coming up. Uh, I've, I've done that once. I thought I was going to be out of town, so I didn't go about two weeks before the election, and I voted an absentee uh, ballot. So it's easy to do. It's not tough to do. And, of course, uh, usually there's no lines of waiting because it's not election day. But anyway, you might consider that. But anyway, what, what, what is all this change business that we're told people want? Well, since the 1960s, 1965-66 to be exact, the government, the federal government, has created a huge dependent class of people that rely on the government to provide with them personally or for their families goods and services in terms of benefits, uh, money, stipends, uh, food stamps, all kinds of things. And we've had 50 years of it now. And almost three generations of Americans have been born and grew up since these things started in 1965 by, uh, by President Johnson. He called it part of his Great Society. That was what he called his administration, the Great Society. And he created uh, what are called entitlements, implying that Americans were somehow entitled to these things from their government. This was truly groundbreaking. I mean, truly groundbreaking. The only time before we get to 1965 that the federal government really provided services or things to the general public or to needy people in the public was during the Great Depression, when Franklin, President Roosevelt, uh, when he found that so many people were out of work. The unemployment level, were record high, I think it was like 25% unemployment. I don't think we've ever seen it that high since the 1930s. Clearly, the federal government had to do something. But once uh, we got back on our feet again, and particularly once after we got involved in World War II in 1941, you really had full employment. And most of these programs from the, the New Deal, is what Roosevelt called his administration in the 30s, most of these programs went by the boards. Um, they became obsolete. And so you roll around through the 40s or the 50s into the 60s until about 1965. Now, what happened in 1965 that London Johnson and his people decided we need to launch a whole new raft of benefits, we'll even call them entitlements, to help many people in the American, among the American people? And what happened was this. It was called the Baby Boomers. The baby boomers is that huge jump in the birth rate, the population, that occurred after 
World War II ended. When all the GIs came back, they married and started having their families, some that might have been married beforehand, being shipped off to Europe or the Pacific, uh, was not a good time to start a family. So many people, even if they were married, delayed having families. So after the war, starting 1946, um, everybody started having their kids. Uh, and this continued on right through the 1950s. In those days, most people didn't have one or two children. They had three or four. They uh, not only replaced themselves, they, they did better than that. And um, this demographic ended in 1964, just a year really before we saw the launch of the Great Society program. And the biggest problem the government had by the mid-1960s was what to do with all this money that was flowing into uh, the U.S. Treasury because all the baby boomers were coming of age now. They were turning 20, 20 21 years old. They were entering the full-time job market and they were paying taxes that full-time workers pay. So all of a sudden, you had this windfall of money. What's more, as you looked ahead, because this baby boom lasted, what, 18 years? So Johnson and his people at that time could look ahead and say, hey, this money, this tax income, this isn't going to end anytime soon. Most of these people are going to be in the working world for the next 40 years, starting when they're, say, in their early 20s through their 60s. And... Um, who knows what's going to happen 40 years from now, but that's not our problem. We're not even going to be around. So they used all this money to say, why don't we now launch benefits for people? On one hand, you can say that's great, that's humanitarian, but there was a pragmatism behind it. Um, it can be summed up in the saying, and I've used this in other programs, you may have heard it, of saying, you know, when you give a person a fish, you feed that person for, for the day. But if you teach the person how to fish, you feed that person for a lifetime. This is what a lot of these great society programs were, uh, frankly, giving people fish. And the politicians realized they were creating a dependent class who were depending on getting this fish every day. And running for office, they could say, well, as long as I'm in office and I get reelected, I'll make sure you get your fish. But, you know, somebody else gets in, well, I don't know. You might not get it anymore. I don't have any control over it. Uh, to say that these tactics were not thought of and used is to be very naive, in my opinion. So right away, the entitlements program, Great Society, were clearly used for political purposes. I referred to President Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. Uh, he is the one with these programs back then told his party people that by spending money and giving people help, you, you were ensuring that they would then elect you on, on election day. And then he, he summed it up simply by saying, spend and spend, elect and elect. And I don't know if that was remembered or forgotten, but it, it, it was rediscovered in the 1960s, and it's kind of been that way ever since. So, for the first, I don't know, 190 years of America's existence, say starting in 1776 and going to about 1965, 66, uh, we had a government that had limited involvement, really, in people's lives. There were three things 
that were expected from the federal government. And these are the things that Washington and Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Monroe, Madison, and others geared. The three things were this. These were the jobs of the federal government for the public. Number one, to safeguard law and order so we could walk down our streets without being accosted, shot at, mugged, hit, whatever. Law and order. Number two, protect our borders against invasions of any sorts. I'll leave it to you to say how well that's been done. So one, law and order. Two, protect our borders. And three, the third thing from the federal government, get out of the way. Once you've got law and order and protecting the borders, you then let people do their search for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as it says in, in the, 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 I think that's a Declaration of Independence. Um, it's up to people to pursue their fortunes or not to pursue them as they so wished. And that's, uh, many people say that's what built this country, the, the, the uh, entrepreneur spirit of it. Uh, built this country. Anyway, you get to the mid-1960s and all of a sudden, hey, as an American citizen, you are entitled to these services, these benefits from the federal government. And the federal government can pay for these things because of the influx of income, income taxes, from the baby boomers who have flooded the job markets and are going to be there for the next 40 years. So it looks like, in a sense, you could say, well, everybody's winning nobody's losing. People win. They get benefits they never had before. Uh, the government wins. They're able to do things for more people. And you can say even people pay the taxes. I mean, no one's really necessarily paying more taxes. It just is more people paying taxes. So the government uh, has more money to spend. And of course, governments, you give them more money, they will spend it. That's just what governments tend to do, especially when they're tied to the need to get elected and reelected to office. So that's how we got where we are today. And you can talk to many people who are quite intelligent and you say, what do you think is the role of the federal government in our life? And they will tell you, well, it's to do things for people, to give benefits and help people in their lives and give them money or education or this or that, whatever they need. And most people won't realize this has only started since about 1965. This is relatively a new thing for the federal government to be doing. Now, you may also ask, and it's fair game, well, Bob, you know, so what's so wrong with it? Just because we didn't do it in the first 190 years of our history, does that mean we, we shouldn't do it now? We shouldn't have done it in the 60s? No, of course not. Just say we never did it before. That's always a bad thing, even in our jobs, uh, of someone coming up with a new idea to shoot it down on the basis that, oh, we never did it before. So no, that's not where I'm going with this. Um, what I'm going is a little more pragmatic, and that is to say that the government can spend money to help people as long as it has the money to spend. And that was true for about 40 years since the 1960s. It's no secret, and we do hear this a lot, that the government is really spending money it doesn't have. That's why the, the, the deficit is rising, the, um, the amount of money the government needs to borrow, the amount of interest money it pays on these. China holds a lot of our debts. Uh, they're, a, they're a major creditor of the United States. That's the problem. Lyndon Johnson didn't do that back in the 60s. He spent money that the government was receiving in tax revenue. 
we're now spending money we don't have. It's been compared to somebody who is spending money by putting it on their credit cards. They don't actually have this money. Uh, they're, they're maxing out their credit cards. And the federal government is like someone who's maxed out in the credit cards. And instead of saying, wait a minute, we need to slow down the spending and start paying this off. No, the government is saying, no, I know what we'll do. We won't slow down the spending. We'll just get more credit cards and put more on that. That It's simplified and oversimplified, but that in effect what's been going on here in recent years. The surplus that Lyndon Johnson and subsequent presidents and administrations had, we no longer have because there's not the taxpayer base. And today, through a lot of other reasons, they say that fully 40 to 50% of people who earn wages don't pay taxes. It's not because they're like Donald Trump, because they're using exemptions and things in the tax laws to, to, to legally avoid paying taxes. No, it's because the government says if you don't make a certain threshold of money, even if you earn it in wages and salaries, you don't have to pay any taxes. And what's more, some of those people will even get a refund. They say, well, how can someone get a tax refund when they never paid it in the first place? A uh, good question, but that's how things go. So we don't even have the same tax base we did 50 years ago that we do today. So that's why there's been a problem. So going back to the original question, when we hear that the Americans, the voters want change, I think the only change they really want is to keep these entitlements coming and maybe even increase them somehow, even though the government can't pay for it, increase them. That's the change they want more, more of the same. If you say, is the change you want to reduce these programs, to start cutting them back, etc., I think many voters will say, no, we don't want that kind of change. That's why I think it's such a slippery thing to be talking about voters want change. And um, we're not, we're not going to see that. We are going to see, I think, a government, no matter who is elected, Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump, I think the work of the huge monolith we call the federal government is going to continue really without skipping a beat. And that is going to be for businesses, and that's really what I'm, we're talking about here with funeral service in Washington. With businesses, it means we're not going to see any end of regulations. Now, how many regulations are really out there and are being made up? Well, it's public information. It's no secret. You don't need WikiLeaks or anything else to find it out. It actually, you can find it in a, probably about a half a minute by Googling uh, on your, your, your computer. Today, and it's updated every day, I took a look at the, all the federal agencies and how many regulations, not how many regulations we have already. We know that's thousands. How many new ones they're putting out? Okay. First, let me just read off some statistics for you I wrote down here. Okay. Now, today, there is a deadline for the public to file comments on 12 new regulations that are being written. 12 new regulations today. That's, that's not so bad, right? Well, in the next three days, next three days, 50 regulations have comment deadlines. In the next seven days, 137 new regulations will have deadlines for public comments. In the next two weeks, the number is 278. You see how precise these are? These are really two 
the exact number. This isn't about or approximately. They know exactly to the letter, to the individual regulation. Next two weeks, 278 regulations. And the next month, 574 regulations. And in the next three months, comments will be due for 978 new regulations. Now, before you say or think anything else, let me tell you, hey, this is the good news. This is the good news. So you're probably saying, well, Bob, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? Well, here it is. Let me give you the numbers on the number of new regulations that are actually put out, not awaiting public comment for further work, but have been finalized, are published, and people have to obey them. The number of new regulations that were published just today, as I speak to you, are 82. 82. Okay, let's take it a step further. New regulations published in the last three days are 295. 295. The number of new regulations that have come out in the past seven days, 404 new regulations. 404. Now, I'll give you some more, but I'll tell you right now, I hope you're sitting down, and if you have a weak heart, you better not listen to it. You better cover your ears with your hands or something and not listen to these figures. Okay, ready? The number of new regulations published in the past 15 days, 15 days, a little over two weeks, are 1,022 new regs. In the past month, the past month, the number of new regulations published are 2,104. 2,104. And last but not least, in case you're wondering, the number of new regulations published by federal agencies in the past six months are 6,282. 6,282 in the last six months, new regulations. Now, I look at these figures all the time. I've been looking at these for years. I'd like to tell you, hey, guys, I got to be honest, this is unusual. This is unusually high. This is atypical. You never see figures like that. I'd be lying. The fact is, these are normal, typical figures. I see day in and day out, month in and month out, year in and year out. The federal agencies are, regulations are us. And the same can be said of the number of laws that are being cranked in Congress. You know, laws are us, U.S. Congress. Some people like to point out that the number of new laws passed by Congress during the Obama administration is actually less than the laws that came out during the Bush administration. Uh, as far as I can see, that's true. That's a valid statistic. But there's a reason behind it in that we've had much more gridlock by the members of Congress during the Obama years than we did during the Bush years. Uh, it's not because they've gotten responsible and are restraining themselves from socking us with new laws all the time. Okay, so that is bringing us where we are today. This is going to continue. These regulations, regardless of who is elected president, regardless of which party, whether the Republicans contain the majority, continue with the majority in the House or the Senate, or the Democrats take one or both. Uh, this cranking out of laws and regulations, this will continue. There might be a little blip or something for one reason or another, but it's not going to stop. And this is the problem. This is our problem as business people. 
for funeral service in Washington. Okay, I want to conclude because I think I'm running over my, my time. I usually try and time it for about 20, 21 minutes. So I better wrap up here. Don't want to overstay my welcome with you. So uh, I want to give you my, my, my prediction on who I think will win. And I'm using the same rationale that the odd, odds makers use in the United Kingdom, in Britain. In Britain, it is legal to, to bet on elections. It is illegal to do that here in the United States. So in England, you can bet on elections, and that would include U.S. elections as well. And the people, because they're putting their money where their mouth is, they don't really care who they like or who they agree with or anything else. They want to bet money on who they think will win, so they will win money. So they will bet on a candidate that maybe they don't like at all. But if they think the voters are going to vote for that person, that's who they do. So that, in that same spirit, I'm saying to you then, I predict this person will win the election, not because I necessarily want to see this person, or I agree with them, or I think the other one is better. No, I just think the mood of the country, the mood of the voters, this business with change, which isn't quite true, and just the, the dependency, the fact that so many people depend on government services and millions more depend on the growth of government for their jobs, not just federal uh, workers, civil servants, but um, private contractors whose clients are federal agencies, and finally, private businesses, but whose clients are other private businesses that they help to comply with government regulations, new ones, old ones, and if they, they're caught in violations, they help them you know, uh, set things right and, and recover from a finding of violation. So there's a lot of people, I mean, just think of all, there's 90,000 tax preparers who work for H&R Block. Do you really think they want to see the tax code simplified? I don't think so, because they'd be afraid they're out of jobs. A very you know, natural and normal thing. So given that, I see that as the real mood of the country. And what I see is the status quo. People really don't want things to change in their world unless it's to get more. But if there's any risk of getting less, they will vote for the status quo. Of the two candidates, I do believe Mrs. Clinton represents the status quo. And from where you're, you're standing, that either is a good thing or it's a bad thing. But I do think that Mrs. Clinton will likely win the election because simply people feel that she is more uh, predictable. They don't think they'll have any big surprises during her time in the White House. And the, they will, they're actually voting not for change. The things they depend on, they don't want change. And so I think she will win. I could be wrong, and I may be wrong, and by the time you hear this, if it's after the election, you'll know whether I'm right or wrong. But in any event, even if I'm wrong on Mrs. Clinton, uh, I do think the work of the federal government will continue. We will continue to see these regulations cranked out and imposed on all of us at a ridiculous rate, and I don't see that's changing, and I'm sorry to say that. I feel bad about that. But the bottom line that's why we have funeral service in Washington. That's why we have to be vigilant. We've got to know who the leaders are, have a relationship with those leaders so they know who we are, so they know about our business, what we do. If we don't tell them about our businesses, about our funeral homes and cemeteries, other people will tell them in our place, and we may not like what they have to say. So that's not good. So we have, regardless of who wins the election, we all have our work cut out for us because that's the nature of our government at this point in the 21st century. 
regardless of who wins or what party wins the majority. Okay. So thank you for listening. Um, that's all for now, but I hope I've given you a few things to think about. And if you're not active in politics, I th would implore you to start being active because you're doing it to protect yourself, to protect your families, and to protect your businesses. So thank you very much, and thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye now.